In the summer of 1982, between my graduation from high school and the beginning of college, I began driving a taxi in and around Philadelphia. I started at a suburban company called Narberth Cab, which had a dispatch office and a basement grotto beneath an Italian restaurant. Because I was the newest and youngest driver, the dispatchers often stuck me with the worst cab in the fleet, my 1970s Dodge Dart. When I pulled up to apartment buildings, the tailpipe spewed clouds of gray exhaust and sent crowds scurrying. We called it the crop duster. Once the passengers stepped inside, though, the taxi became like a cozy corner bar. For a few miles or a long ride, customers talked about whatever was on their minds and what they really cared about work, children, marriage, and their futures. For an aspiring journalist like me, it was ideal on-the-job training. My passengers often shared personal thoughts and feelings without fear of judgment, and occasionally, I saw them at their most vulnerable. I drove an elderly woman to a liquor store every few days to buy a bottle of vodka and hauled a middle-aged man home from a bar one afternoon and helped him up the stairs. One summer night, the dispatcher sent me to a house out on the main line. A young woman stood waiting in the doorway with two suitcases, but she wasn't heading to the airport. As I drove her to the home of a friend, she explained how her boyfriend had been so kind in the beginning. I got sucked into this, she said, gesturing as we passed the spacious stone houses with white columns and freshly cut lawns. The relationship had soured, and she was determined to escape. As I pulled up to her friend's house, she wiped away her tears and thanked me for listening. Nearly three decades later, I prepared to head to Shanghai for my new job as one of National Public Radio's correspondents covering China. It was a challenging assignment. Because of the authoritarian political system and circumspect culture, it wasn't always easy to get Chinese people to speak openly. I flew into Shanghai one summer day in 2011 and boarded the city's magnetic levitation train, one of the world's fastest, with a top speed of 267 miles an hour. Gliding above magnetic rails, maglev as it's called, rocketed toward town at nearly 190 miles an hour, leaving the apartment blocks, cranes, canals, and farm fields outside little more than a blur. When we passed another train heading in the opposite direction, our carriage shook as if it had been struck by an earthquake. This was the impression the Communist Party wanted to leave with visitors. China was changing so fast, it felt like the tectonic plates were shifting beneath your feet. Maglev covered 18 miles in less than eight minutes, but that was long enough to begin to see weaknesses beneath the impressive facade. Maglev, which had cost $1.2 billion, was already seven years old and a white elephant. The seats were worn and most sat empty because the $6 ticket was too expensive and the train's route inconvenient. Maglev dropped passengers nearly 10 miles away from the city center. China had become the world's number two economy in record time but only a small percentage of people had become genuinely wealthy. The quick train trip provided a revealing snapshot of China at the moment, a striking veneer with cracks just beneath the surface. The perception back in the West was different. Most Americans still thought China was on a tear. Our overlords is how comedian Jon Stewart referred to the country's leaders on The Daily Show. The reality, though, was more worrisome and complicated. China's staggering economic growth rates had slowed to a still enviable level above 6%, but the country's boom was over. Government corruption had metastasized. The Chinese now routinely referred to the last 10 years as a lost decade because the government had done so little to address major problems such as air pollution and China's business model, which even party leaders acknowledged had run its course. This was my second tour of China. 
I'd worked as a newspaper correspondent in Beijing from 1997 to 2002. Upon my return to the country, I also noticed many encouraging changes in my years away. Though not yet rich, many Chinese were much more prosperous and sophisticated, and online speech was flourishing. I was surprised to find the party allowed a whirlwind of criticism, often targeting the government to swirl around massive digital platforms, such as Sina Weibo, a microblog service considered the Twitter of China. In my first months in Shanghai, it became clear the Communist Party was losing the faith of its people and losing its way. After more than three decades of economic reform, rising living standards, and opening to the world, the globe's most populous country was at a crossroads, and something had to give. How would the party respond to the tremendous changes and rising expectations of its own people? Would it adapt and become more open, or revert to its authoritarian instincts? In 2011, it was anyone's guess.